Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Life's complicated. Who do you talk to about your relationships, your kids, your coworkers? Sure, your friends, but what about the person who cuts your hair? Getting a haircut is something we all need at some point, but going to the barbershop or the neighborhood salon can serve more than just one purpose. Now, why is it that these barbers and stylists often have the personalities that make us open up to them? Today, where we live, we're talking about barbershops that also serve as community spaces, spaces where we feel comfortable talking to one another, despite living in a time when our attention and conversations happen often on our phones, whether it's checking that next email, Facebook thread or latest mic. Now coming up, we're going to talk with Connecticut barbers, and we want to hear from you too. When you go to the barbershop, do you look forward to the conversation? Tell us about it. 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, first, we're going to talk about the history of African-American barbers. Joining us now from the studios at Vassar College is Dr. Quincy Mills, Associate Professor of History at Vassar, author of the book Cutting Along the Color Line, Black Barbers and Barbershops in America. Quincy, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Lucy. I understand that you're a Chicago native, so I'm curious uh, when you first uh, started to get interested in black barbers and barbershops, um, not only in that city, but across the country. Yes. I, uh, during graduate school, I was doing some work with Professor Melissa Harris-Perry. Uh, she was working on her first book, uh, Barbershops, Barbers, and BET. And she asked me to do an ethnography of a barbershop on the south side of Chicago, and I jumped at the opportunity. Uh, so the summer of 2000, I sat in uh, Truth and Soul Barbershop uh, for about four to five days a week um, and just listened and observed the interactions with the folks who were coming in and out of the shop. Uh, and during the process of doing that ethnography, I couldn't help but wonder if barbershops were like this in the 1930s or even the 1830s. Uh, and so for that, I went to digging. Um, and so I uncovered this barber, George Myers, who was a barber in Cleveland, Ohio, um, uh, beginning in the, the 1890s through the 1930s. And Myers was William McKinley's barber before McKinley was elected president. Um, he was also the barber of Marcus Hanna, uh, who was a Republican mover and shaker, right? And so he was probably the 19th century Karl Rove, if mm. you will. Uh, and so uh, Myers was sort of brought into Republican politics in a very interesting way. And so once McKinley was elected president, uh, Myers received a flood of letters from African-Americans across Ohio uh, and indeed from the South, uh, where they were asking Myers to put in a good word for them for a particular po uh, political position uh, in their in their city. Uh, and so Myers intrigued me. So Myers only cut the hair of white men in his shop, uh, but yet he was this arbiter of racial politics in, in Ohio. And so by uncovering Myers, <laughs> I, I was fascinated and I knew that there was more to black barbershops than we had discussed uh, at that time. So it's interesting. So he was seen as someone who's close to power, so people would contact him and what, try to get jobs? 
yeah, Myers literally and figuratively had the ear of the president, right? And so, yeah, they were looking for him for assistance, to putting in a word, um, uh, to to push the administration when there was a lynching, right? So, so Myers was sort of seen as that as that person who could uh, who, who could push the 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 presidential administration to to address issues of racial politics and racial justice. How difficult was it to research this topic? Obviously, George Myers, a very uh, uh, rich history there, but then you wanted to see and learn about the history of, of black barbers even before his time. How, where do you begin? Well, it, it, it wasn't as difficult as I, as I thought, uh, largely because in the 19th century, uh, a majority of the black-owned barbershops were exclusively grooming white men. Uh, and they made tons of money doing it. And so black barbers in the 19th century were uh, central figures of the black middle class. Uh, and so they're all over the newspapers, one, because of the philanthropic work that they were doing, because of the assistance that they were doing, the agitation. Uh, they were um, fighting against slavery. Um, but also because other black men were taking these barbers to task for uh, exclusively grooming white men. And so they were on the other side of that news cycle. And so they're all over the news. Um, they were, it's a certainly written, uh, there were are four autobiographies from black barbers. So the sources from the 19th century were, were actually quite plentiful. It wasn't until the 20th century <laughs> that uh, uh, I had to be much more creative in trying to find uh, these barbers, trying to find sources from them. Uh, and that's largely because we see a major dip in um, uh, in their wealth. Uh, we see a slight uh, reconfiguration of their influence, uh, meaning uh, they're less influential nationally, but probably more influential locally. Um, and so I had to, to, to be more creative in finding those 20th century sources. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today, we're talking about barbershops. Uh, first part of the hour, looking at the history of black barbers and barbershops in this country. Quincy Mills is, is joining us from the studios of Vassar College, associate professor of history there, author of the book, Cutting Along the Color Line, Black Barbers and Barbershops in America. Now, oh, Quincy, we were talking about um, you know black men exclusively cutting and shaving uh, white men. Uh, if we go back into the time of slavery, slaves that were shaving their masters, so that tradition, in a sense, continued uh, post-Civil War. But then what did you see shifting um, after the Civil War and who black barbers were then serving? Sure. There was an internal shift and an external shift. The external shift was that uh, German barbers particularly formed a barber's union. Uh, and that barber's union wanted to essentially um, compete with black barbers for that exclusive you know, white clientele. Uh, in downtown business districts. And so they pushed for licensing laws that, that exist today. And these laws were to essentially decide who would and could become a barber. Uh, they essentially tried to, um, to reskill barbering, if you will. So they saw barbering as an unskilled profession when black men were dominating the trade. Uh, although I think anyone who has been shaved with a straight razor knows full well how much skill the barber needs to do that work. Uh, nonetheless, because black folks were, were doing that work, uh, it was seen as unskilled. And so uh, by pushing for licensing laws uh, that would indeed require uh, uh, potential barbers to go to a barber college, um, to know the anatomy of the body, uh, these were things that, again, were, were put in place that would, um, in many ways, attempt to exclude 
black barbers, uh, and in some instances worked. Um, the other thing that, that's sort of happening here is that in the 1890s, there was a new generation of black men who entered barbering. They were born after the Civil War, so they were born during, during freedom, um, and they wanted to open barbershops in black communities. Uh, they wanted to shave uh, black men. Uh, and certainly, as we know, this is the time of the rise of Jim Crow. And so these two competing forces are happening at the same time, which essentially uh, uh, what comes out of that is that uh, there are fewer black-owned barbershops in downtown districts and more barbershops opening in black communities, uh, which would be really central uh, because during Jim Crow, uh, barbershops would be spaces where black men could uh, retreat to uh, outside of the surveillance of a larger white public. And so barbershops became important in many ways, permanent spaces for black men to make sense of their of their world, both locally, nationally, and certainly internationally. So when we move towards the civil rights movement, what role did these barbershops play? Barbershops played as much of a role as the barber allowed the shop to play. So that's to say that the that barbershops themselves don't do anything. It's the people inside them that, that sort of does the work. And so um, history shows that where barbers were active with the NAACP or they were active with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, if the barber was active, you better believe that that shop was active because they, they had literature uh, in their shops. Uh, they pressed their customers to vote. Um, for example, in Richmond, Virginia, uh, a barber by the name of William Lomax, uh, he was a part of the uh, crusade for voters. Uh, and the poll tax was a was a public list that demonstrated sort of who was registered to vote. Uh, he kept a copy of the poll tax in his shop, and when folks were talking politics in his shop, he would look on the poll tax list to see if they were registered, and he'd say, "Quote: If you're not registered to vote, you can't talk politics in here." <laughs> uh, and that's fair. <laughs> um, that is fair, right? And in many cases, he argued that you know folks would actually leave the shop and go register uh, and then come <laughs> come on back and try to engage in conversation. But that's to say that, you know, uh, again, as much as the barber was active, more likely the shop would be very active. And so these shops would be critical. Outside of the church, black churches were by far, it's not debatable, critical institutions within the black community and within black activism. They were spaces owned by African-Americans. They were large spaces. Uh, barbershops, are not comparable in that way, uh, but yet they provided this sort of organic uh, political consciousness, consciousness to take shape uh, that, again, we see uh, uh, barbershops serving in both the North and the South. You know, part of the reason we wanted to talk about barbershops today is this idea of a, a community space. So um, through your research and disobservations today in, in 2017, you know, what is the role of the black barbershop today? How is it different from um, the research that you've done? So. Today, I, I would I would argue that barbershops are still central anchoring institutions within black communities, especially considering the rise of gentrification. Uh, barbers, uh, much like ministers uh, are and beauticians, um, they see generations of a family come through their spaces. Right, uh, a barber will certainly cut. Um, 
potentially like th- two, three, sometimes four generations of men and women in a particular family. Uh, and so you multiply that and think about a larger community. Uh, and so barbers and beauticians, I'd argue, right, have their pulse on what's going on around a neighborhood. They have their pulse on uh, black youth. They have their pulse on uh, the changing business environment and political environment. Um, And so they provide a sense of stability, if you will, even though we're talking about these small shops in many cases, shops that that aren't making a lot of money, uh, but it's not. And the money matters. Let me let me be clear. The barber has to turn some kind of profit to open the next day, the next week, and the next year. Uh, but it's important to think about it together. Uh, barbering is still uh, a very um, an industry that is open to black men and women to enter, right, with few barriers to entry, right? So one could indeed become a barber and realistically open a shop. And so uh, as we think about entrepreneurship um, and economic opportunity, barbering still provide because folks will still need haircuts, right? Those haircuts have changed, the styles have changed, but folks will still come to the barbershop. Um, we're not at the moment where one can get a virtual haircut, so, so to speak, <laughs> while some people do uh, uh, cut their hair themselves. But I think barbershops will certainly still be central um, to communities um, across the country. Uh, but certainly uh, at a time where it seems like our world is, has been torn asunder uh, and folks are l- trying to f- make sense of it, yes, they can go to social media, but it helps. And it's different when you uh, go and are sitting face to face with someone or a number of people trying to make sense of the latest thing that has come out of the presidential administration. Right. Uh, being able to go to that shop to say, did, did I hear this right? Did Trump just say that? Uh, barbershops provide that sort of space to, again, uh, understand a larger worldview. That's uh, Quincy T. Mills, associate professor at Vassar, also author of Cut- Cutting Along the Color Lines, Black Barbers and Barbershops in America. Um, in studio with us now is a, bar- a barber from Hartford, uh, Liebert F. Fitz- uh, Lester II, owner of It's a G-Thang Salon and Spa. Liebert, welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm loving the conversation. Uh, you know, I've been a barber in Hartford, and Professor, I like to say hello. I actually have your book as well. Oh, thank you. Hello. I um, saw you nodding your head when uh, uh, when Quincy was talking about seeing generations in your shop, uh, understanding what's happening in the community. Tell us what you observe. Well, um, I think we need to go back a little further when you guys were talking about the man cutting the president, because um, Governor Rowland. Um, I was his barber before uh, some things happened. Mm, you had some good conversation. Tell and, us. <laughs> and, you know, when, when you talk about, you know, me cutting the governor's hair and him coming into the north end of Hartford, you know, it's it's ironic how so many individuals begin to put you in a position that maybe you're not even really to accept. And like, oh, can you ask this? Can you ask that? Can you say the other? This is happening. That's happening. Uh, you need to tell him this. Oh, we don't agree with that. Oh, we like when he did this. And it's like, okay, um, I'm cutting his hair for about 30 minutes. And so when you look at the history of barbering, and as as he talked about, you know, from the antebellum South and how barbers, barbers always played a pivotal role, even as the slaves, because, you know, we were always one step away from the life or death of the master because we groomed them. And we put the straight razor to their neck. So as a result, in the history of the barbers, the barbers had a certain sense of power 
because if you were if you were good and crafty with that straight razor and you can give them that baby butter soft shave, you know, a lot of people wanted that. And so what they would do is they would come to the slave and have the slave to shave them. Mm-hmm. But their fear was that if you mistreat that slave who's the barber, what's going to happen if he decides to go rogue and you're going to be the individual who gets your, um, your throat cut? So they would, you know, they call it the cutthroat razor. And they would have conversations in their back office about how you can't really mistreat such and such slave because, you know, he's a barber and he's really good at his craft and, oh, we'll let that go. He's, he's under control. So being a barber has always given power. Uh, in 2008, I built a 15,000-square-foot facility from a clipper and an outliner. And presently today, I manufacture my own products. And so as you talk about barbering and the history of barbering, you have to even go back to people like Alonzo Herndon. Alonzo Herndon was a slave, and after he graduated, I'm, I'm sorry, I was about to say graduated because his, his mansion is actually on the AUC Center where uh, I went to Morehouse. And I didn't realize that that was his mansion. I used to walk past it every day. And I'm like, wow, what is this place doing here? But it was actually the museum for Alonzo Herndon. And what Alonzo Herndon um, did, he took barbering to another level because uh, a life insurance company went out of business. So Alonzo Herndon, he was the first black man to own a business on Peachtree Street, and it was a barbershop. It was called the Crystal Palace. And he had had, uh, 20 20, um, chairs or bats because at the time, the men would also bathe and shave. So when they groomed themselves, they took baths and so forth. So he owned what was called the Crystal Palace on Peachtree Street. And he was so nice, as I would say, as a barber with the razor that it put him in a position that everyone wanted his service. And so what he did was he began to train his understudies and the apprentices who all of these black men who were crafty with the razors, because at that time period, no black men were served by black barbers. If a black barber was to serve a a black person, it would be a relative, it would be a friend, and it would be outside of the salon. So... The salon was segregated. Only Caucasians could go into the salon. So me as a black man, I couldn't go and say, hey, I'm going to get a haircut. I'm waiting behind so-and-so who happens to be Caucasian. We primarily serve just white men. So being in that barber position, Alonzo Herndon realized that there were certain things that weren't happening in in our community. And he was serving powerful individuals, politicians, lawyers, judges, and so forth. So that resulted in him hearing about an insurance company going out of business. So Alonzo Herndon, having become wealthy unknowingly, uh, so he hear, he heard the uh, patrons talking about, oh, so-and-so is about to go under. Uh, you know, if, if I were him, I would take X amount for the place. And the other guy, oh, no, he should take this amount. You know, not knowing that the barber, he's listening, he's hearing everything that's taking place. And so he purchases the Atlanta Life Insurance Company and today they still have $800 million in assets. And that was from a barber. And, you know, as I build my place, it's a G thing. Um, you know, I have the Institute of High-End Groomers where I'm presently in the process of grooming what they call second-chance individuals, but I call them another chance, you know, giving guys another chance. Because I know through barbering, barbering has always been a vessel in which the black man could become wealthy. You know, um, I'm a college grad uh, but, you know, everyone says to me, what are you doing cutting hair? What are you doing cutting hair? One, I love to cut hair. And two, 
it's it's a powerful position because in 2008, when I finished my facility, which is 15,000 square feet, a little kid from the projects came in, and he's like, hey, Mr. G, Mr. G, I thought he wanted a lollipop. And he was like, no, no. He said, I was watching. He said, I saw you build it. And he told me how many people were saying, oh, he's not going to be able to finish it. And Because I had some problems with construction. You know, I'm a barber. I'm not a builder. So, you know, I learned a lot building a facility. But one thing that really gave me real appreciation was when a young kid said, when I get big one day, I'm going to build something. That must have been a great moment. And we're going to hear more about your story, what led you to barbering, and what you're observing in the community here in Hartford. Um, But I do want to take time to thank uh, Quincy Mills, again, Associate Professor of History at Vassar College, author of Cutting Along the Color Line, Black Barbers and Barbershops in America. Dr. Mills, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I look forward to learning more about you, Liebert. And Dr. Mill, I'll be reaching out to you. So if possible, (laughs) would it be okay for me to get your contact information? Absolutely. Thank you, sir. We like making that connection. Coming up, we're going to talk to uh, barbershops and about the profession of cutting hair. Is it still a place where people feel comfortable talking to each other about any topic? We're going to hear more from Barber Liebert Lester II. He's in studio with us, owner of It's a G-Thang Salon and Spa in Hartford. We're going to hear from more barbers coming up. We want to hear from you, too. 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org slash at WNPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalthathanchel. Today we're talking about barbershops. Is it one of the few places where people still talk to each other, despite despite the presence of cell phones and all of its distractions? In studio with me are three barbers, uh, Liebert Lester II, owner of It's a G-Thang Barber Salon and Spa in Hartford. And joining the conversation now is Anthony Williams, owner of Jaws Barbershop in West Hartford, and Frank D'Angelo, lead barber instructor at Ace Cosmetology and Barber Training Center in Waterbury in Hartford. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so we know that barbershops are certainly part of pop culture, too. Here's a blast from the past. Remember that 2002 movie, Barbershop? Cedric the Entertainer plays the character Eddie. Here he is in this clip arguing with others about whether Rosa Parks gets too much credit in the civil rights movement. No, it was a whole lot of black folk sat down on bus and they got thrown in jail and they did it way for Rosa these. Oh, and they did it yeah. way for yeah. Only yeah. difference between yeah. them and her is that she was secretary at the NAACP and she knew Martin Luther King and they got a lot of publicity. Not only is what you're saying not true, it is wrong and disrespectful for you to discuss Rosa Parks in that way. Exactly. Wait, 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 hold on here. Is this a barbershop? Is this the barbershop? Yes, it is. I mean, we can't talk straight in the barbershop. Then where can we talk straight? We can't talk straight nowhere else. You know, this ain't nothing but healthy conversation. That's yeah, all right. Right. got to tell Rosa Park down. There ain't, ain't nobody exempt in the barbershop. You know that. Ain't nobody yeah. exempt. We wanted to play that clip to ask uh, each of you, um, you know, you're, you're barbers. And is it true that no subject or person is too controversial? I'll start with uh, Anthony Collins. Uh, Anthony Williams. You try Anthony to, Williams, sorry. You try to keep it as open as you can. Try not to hold back. That's how you get the most pure and raw, you know, conversation from everyone. I mean, you got you to, gotta, you know, filter, but keep it raw. That's how you get the most and the best out of the convo. Mm-hmm. 
And, and Frank, we were just playing a clip from Barbershop where uh, they were saying that no uh, topic, subject is too controversial. Is that something you noticed uh, when you were, you know, barbering uh, and people were talking about all kinds of things with you? Absolutely, absolutely. So, Liebert, uh, you were mentioning earlier um, in the show that you used to cut Governor Rowland's hair. And so when we were thinking about the show, we were talking about, you know, experiences we've had with our stylists or our barbers, and we see them as almost informal counselors, so to speak. So when you're having conversations with people like the former governor, uh, John Rowland, or others, do you feel like that's like a confidentiality, like what they talk about with you, you keep to yourself? Well, I think all conversations are um, confidential. When you when you as a barber, when a client, I mean, clients have told me things. Uh, you know, there was an instance where I haven't told anybody, so if you're listening, a guy's wife was having an affair, and he told it to me. And I'm looking at him like, dude, you really just told me that? And, you know, it was like he was confiding in me, like he had no one else to talk to. And he was like, uh, like what should I do? And I'm looking at him, I'm like, uh, what should you do? I'm like, you have the proof, everything. I said, you know, that's a decision that you're going to have to make. And, you know, for maybe three or four weeks, every time he came in, he was, like, updating me. And I'm saying to myself, I don't want to be in it because, you know, I remember some years ago a close friend had a girlfriend, and I told him something, and I lost that friend. And my father told me, he said, listen, don't get in people's business like that. You, and I was like, oh, this I grew up with this guy. Man, this is my buddy. I got to tell him. And that was the worst thing I ever did. So with the customer, you know, I'm trying to keep it business. When he told me that, you know, I let it ride the four or five weeks and he stopped talking about it and I didn't ask about it. And I still cut his hair and everything is fine. So I guess I still see him together. So I guess they worked it out. Uh, no judgment zone, zone no judgment. so to speak. Um, Anthony Williams, I'll go back to you again, owner of Jaws Barbershop in West Hartford, Connecticut. What what led you to barbering? Uh it actually just, I mean, being raised single mom, no dad, never really experienced a barbershop. Uh, my mom used to cut my hair. Sixth grade, walking home from school, gentleman uh, asked me to go get a green tea. He worked in a barbershop, and uh, in return, he would give me a shape-up. So when I came back with the green tea, uh, I waited for hours for the free shape-up because, you know, if it's free, you never prioritize. <laughs> And uh, after getting that shape up, it was a cool experience, like you said, open discussions around a bunch of men that, you know, I can learn little things from. You take little things from so many people, and it creates a great individual if you have a good atmosphere. And from that day forward, I showed up at the barbershop to sweep, answer the phone. And sixth grade to senior year, I was learning. Senior year, I was cutting. Next thing you know, I was hired by him. Ten years fast forward, I opened up my own shop, and here I am now. So... And so that was a role model that really inspired you. I mean, it happened, yeah. It became a role model. I mean, I don't think he knew what he was doing. Like, as far as helping me, I just sort of took it upon myself to learn whatever I could from the atmosphere. And Frank D'Angelo, you were a barber. Now you're a lead barber instructor at Ace Cosmetology and Barber Training Center. What led you to cut hair and shave? Well, um, it's kind of a great story. Uh, I was in my mom's belly when she was in beauty school. Um, I come from a family of, you know, hairdressers and barbers of such. Um, you know, growing up uh, smack in the middle of New Haven, um, you know, uh, pretty uh, pretty rough little city there. Um, learning how to barber and learning how to cut hair was something that was always a passion of mine, um, you know, because it was a family tradition. So um, just decided to get into it and uh, 
when I graduated school, they uh, decided to make me an instructor and uh, pass on some of my knowledge uh, to other kids in the community and help grow this company. So tell us, who enters a profession today? Who are the students that you're training? You know, I got everyone from waitresses to uh, retired truckers to um, uh, retail workers, uh, food preps. I mean, I have everything under the sun, carpenters, electricians, and it just there's just a huge, huge, huge gamut of people that are in that classroom. So. And when you are training them, I mean, are, is it obvious that they're people, people, people? Um, you know, some are a little bit more reserved than others, um, but uh, we try to break them out of their shell a little bit. And Libra, I wanted to go back to you. And if you, um, if you're listening now, and there's a barber that you remember growing up, or if you appreciate going to your barber shop or salon because it's finally time where you could have candid conversation, we want to hear from you. That number eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. We got a tweet from a listener. We always talk politics in the beauty salon. Can't wait to see the ladies tomorrow. And so maybe that's something that you share at sentiment as well. We want to hear from you again eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. But Libra, I wanted to go back to you because um, you mentioned a little earlier that uh, mentorship is really important and you're training people through the Second Chance Society. Tell us about that. All right. So basically, I have um, accreditation through the Board of Education and the state of Connecticut, and I have a training school by the name of the Institute of High-End Groomers. And it's the Institute of High-End Groomers. It's a G thing. I have 40 chairs. Uh, Like I said earlier, my facility is 15,000 square feet. And over the years, uh, as the brother from Jaws said that, you know, I've groomed a lot of young men in the barbershops who actually have barbershops. And what I would do is I would go and recruit like the little bad kids in the neighborhood. You know, you let them sweep up, you know, run to the store, uh, you know, answer the phone, take out the trash. You know, just bring them into an environment where you can begin, you know, to teach them a little discipline and, you know, about being a man. Because a lot of times you'll see females bringing their sons into the barbershop and they really don't know how to deal with the behavior of the child resisting allowing the barber to get into his personal space. So as a result, you know, these are single females with a, a male child. They don't know how to um, really deal with them. So bringing them to the barbershop, a lot of them realize that in the barbershop is an environment in which he can get some interaction with men. He can kind of, you know, gravitate towards things that guys are doing. And uh, many of them will ask, is it okay if my son comes by on Saturday and do different things? And so over the course of years, I have um, I have about 11 guys that have barbershops that I've trained, young men that I've groomed. I'm in the process right now of working uh, with the Department of Corrections to train these individuals who I, I don't say a second chance, but giving them another chance another opportunity to um, change their life because I know, as we discussed earlier, barbering has always been a means by which an individual could become self-sufficient, independent, and no one ever asks an individual about his past, his history. All they want to know is, can you cut hair? Can you work that straight razor? Can you fade? You know, can you cut with color? Can you make a design? So barbering has always been a vessel since slavery in which an individual could become free. That's a really interesting point because one of the reasons, again, we wanted to talk about this today is the idea of, of these important community spaces where people gather. But the idea that, you know, you can be self-made. Anthony, tell us about that and what it meant to you to be able to open your shop, to have clients from all different backgrounds coming to you because of your skill. Mm. 
I mean, the skill is always sought out, and barbers right now are a dime a dozen. I always say there's people who cut hair, and there are barbers. You know, a barber, you could cut anyone who sits in your chair, no matter what type of hair. Hair is hair. That's how we look at it. Someone who cuts hair is like, oh, I don't, I don't do that. But for the most part, becoming self-made, it, it takes passion. You have to have a passion to cut hair. Anyone could do it, but to be a barber, to become a master barber or an instructor, you have to have passion because without that, there's no point in waking up every day and doing what you do. But, I mean, the platform is there, and to become self-made, it just takes a lot of work. The key thing that people say, I want to be a barber because you make your own schedule. That's not true. Every client is our boss. Some people have one boss. However many clients you have, that's how many bosses you have because you have to make that person happy every time they get in your chair. So it's, it's very... It's very difficult to be a good barber, to, you know, filter your time between so many people, remember the last thing you guys were talking about two weeks ago, and pick it right back up when they sit in your chair. It's just a lot of little things that people don't take into consideration that we have to do and the relationships outside the shop. When you see someone in Walmart that you cut their hair two months ago and they're just so ecstatic to see you, and you're like, oh, my God, i got to remember his name. <laughs> But it's, it's little stuff. But yeah. being self-made is it's the, I guess it's the, the best thing that I could say I've ever done. I mean, mm -hmm. it's an awesome feeling. Now, um, speaking of how you take your clients seriously, you're gonna have to leave the show a little bit early so you can open up your shop. So we yeah. want to make sure that we get you out of here on time. Uh, but I want to take some phone calls right now. Uh, John's calling from West Hartford. John, you're on the show. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm John. I'm from Harlem, New York. And where barbershop is the place to that you wanna the place to be. Like growing up in Harlem, I remember the people that you look up to, all the fellas that you wanted to be like were always at the barbershop. You know, the one with with the best cars, the the one dressed with the most swag, like we would say in New York, were at the barbershop. And to this day, like I don't get a haircut in, in Connecticut. I'm from New York. I go every two weeks to New York, one fifty second street in Amsterdam to get my haircut. Because that's like a, it's a ritual, you know, it's more than just a haircut, it's a ritual. You know, it's my, my friends, you know, associates, everyone I grew up with, you know, it's there. So it's more like it becomes sort of a family environment more than anything else. I don't know if, if you understand what I'm talking about. Oh, I, from, I hear but. you. <laughs> Well, thank yeah, you, John, yeah. for that comment. And I wanted to go back to Frank D'Angelo again. He's a instructor and also has been a barber for some time. You know, talk about that loyalty people have for when they find someone that knows how to not only cut their hair, but they trust them. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, the relationship and the rapport that's, you know, developed between the guest um, and, and the stylist uh, or barber um, is priceless. Um, a lot of the secrets that are shared between those two people are uh, developed that friendship over many, many years. Um, uh, I've listened to so many different stories over the over the years that I've been doing it, and uh, it gets better and better every single day. Um, the biggest thing that I'd like to say is, you know, barbering is eighty percent of it is uh, is your attitude, and twenty percent of it is your technical skill. Um, you know, aspiring to be a barber is great, but actually having the personality and the uh, and the mindset to go with it, forward with it, is is something that's uh, fun to explore. Is that your first lesson to your students? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, because I a lot of the jobs out here have transferable skills into this type of profession. It, it is important to uh, 
you know, talk about, you know, your attitude uh, versus your technical skill. The technical skill will come come into play over time with, with rigorous practice and good mentoring. Um, uh, but that personality is something that comes from within. Um, I want to take a couple more calls before we break. Uh, Adam's also calling from West Hartford. Adam, you're on the show. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'd like to give a shout-out to my barber, Phil, at uh, Phil's Kingswood Barbershop in West Hartford. I've been going to him for now for, gosh, probably 12 or 13 years, so obviously very loyal customer. And um, I was very uh, proud last year to be able to uh, hand Phil a copy of a book that I wrote on the New York Mets because um, Phil is a huge Mets fan, and I had many conversations with him about the Mets uh, you know, coming in to get my hair cut, so much so that I felt like he was a, a resource. And so I, I mentioned him in the acknowledgments, and I was um, thrilled to be able to do that. And when I go in there to see, you know, my book on his shelf in his shop is uh, is a huge thrill. Well, Adam, but before I let you go, what is it about Phil that makes you keep going back to him? Well, as as one of your guests said, you know, a lot of it, you know, some part of it is is the is the, the technical expertise. But you know, this is he's a it's just a great guy, very. Uh, soft-spoken, professional, accommodating, friendly, um, knows me well. I always asks about my family. Um, we talk about home improvement projects all the time. We talk about our dogs, and I, I'd like to—I'd like to think that we've—we've we've established a friendship over the years, and and that's you know that's one of the great things about a relationship with a barber or a hairstylist. You you develop a, a real rapport with them over time, and 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 great trust. Well, thank you, Adam, for your call. And, uh, you know, I wanted to go back to uh, Liebert because we were, again, talking about generations that you've probably seen in, in your career. Um, you know, what does it mean to you to, when you see that next generation coming in and you might know his pop or his grandpop? Well, you know, I, I started at Jack's Barber Salon, uh, you know, some friends of my parents from Jamaica. And, you know, when working at Jack's, you know, those guys went back to the 40s. And one thing that I always say about barbers, you know, you can trace you can trace the barber line. You know, as the brother from Jaws, he talks about he came from a barbershop. And so if you went beyond that barber, that barber came from a barbershop. So you could actually go back to the beginning of barbering and see the bloodline of the razor as us knights of the razor come out. You know, because every, every barbershop begets a barbershop. And so what happens is, you know, the father's coming. He brings his son. And so his son becomes a father who brings his son, who in turn has a son, brings his son. So you'll have three or four generations. You'll see the elderly father, and then you'll see the son, middle age, and then you'll see the young son, and then he happens to have a son, all four of them sitting in the barbershop on a Saturday. And you're like, wow, you have four generations sitting here, and I'm cutting all of them. You know, and so so the barbershop plays a pivotal role in all communities. You know, there have been some changes over the years, um, as Professor, Professor Mills talked about. But a barbershop is a phenomenal place. And being a barber, you know, I believe that your technical skill is the most important aspect because I've, I've had guys in my salon and I've worked with guys who had terrible personalities, but they were so skillful that people would put up with their um, misnomers and their disrespect because that guy could really cut hair. And, I, you know, as a rookie in the game then, you know, my man Gordy, he's in South Carolina and I retired probably about 80. But the guy, he drank alcohol. He was just, to me, I couldn't imagine how he had customers, but people loved him because of the craft. 
And so I think the skill is number one, but personality plays a major role. But if you're really skillful, you can get away with it. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me today are three barbers. We're talking about barbershops, a place where we go, where we look forward to the conversation. Uh, I do want to thank Anthony Williams, again, owner of Jaws Barbershop in West Hartford. As I mentioned, he needs to go to open up his shop. you gotta got to respect those clients, and we appreciate your time. Thanks so much, it. Anthony. Now, uh, Frank D'Angelo and Liebert Lester are going to stay with us. We're going to take your calls, too. That number, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about barbershops and the profession of cutting hair. Now, is it a place you look forward to going for the conversation and the haircut? We have some uh, callers on the line now. Uh, Persephone from Southington, you're on the show. Well, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to thank you, Lucy, for this conversation. Uh, My father was a barber for 80 years. I'm sorry, for 60 years. He's 80 years old. Um, And um, I grew up going to a barbershop. Uh, There were uh, beauticians also there, but now um, fast forward to my life now, I um, started wearing my hair natural about three years ago and was nervous about finding a barber. Um, so I have to give a shout out to Mike's Barbershop in Middletown. I'm going there this afternoon, actually. So it's a wonderful place, it's important in the black community. So again, I just wanted to thank you for um, this show and for this conversation. Well, thank you, Persephone, uh, for that call and, and the comment. Um, I used to live in Middletown for eight years, and uh, that shop is very popular, and I've heard of it. So uh, glad to hear about um, your father's history, too. You know, we heard from Frank that his mom was a, a stylist, and that kind of led him into still the— is. And still is. Oh, okay, tell us about that. Tell, how, is her, how has her shop changed? What has she told you? Well, well, you know, she's pretty traditional. She's been in the business for about 40 years. Um, and, uh, you know, she's a beautician. She doesn't do many uh, heavy, any heavy barbering, just mainly uh, hairstyling and females and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, what's changed over the years is obviously the hairstyles, you know. Um, so she's seen quite a bit um, from the beehive or bouffants and all the way into these, you know, pretty edgy uh, haircuts that we had out there now. I, I mean, it's curious, too, when you talk about the change in uh, hair trends, but also um, there's a lot more unisex salons out there where it's not just men cutting men or women cutting women. Can we talk about a little bit about that, how you've seen that change? I mean, and Liebert, is that how your shop is? Um, actually, uh, we have we have different, different sections. Uh, at, at one point, you know, the shops were becoming unisex, but there's a resurgence in barbering. You'll notice that now you're seeing barbershops again where men are actually doing barbering. And it's going back to like the man cave where you go to your barbershop and they're just the men. And, you know, sometimes women will come in and guys are looking like, you know, what is she doing in the club? Because we discuss serious issues. And, you know, we want sometimes want to argue about the sports or men just want to be men. And, you know, sometimes, you know, there's a certain level of respect that you must have in the presence of a woman. And in the barbershop, you're not really confined to that box. So you're allowed to be who you are. And, you know, sometimes men are bucking like rams, arguing over politics or who's going to win the Super Bowl or, you know, how Brady beat my Steelers. And, you know, (laughs) you said that the Steelers were going to win. I wanted to uh, take a quick call now. Christian's calling from Stanford. Christian, you're on the air. Yes. Hi, Lucy. Wonderful topic. Thank you so much for having me. 
Uh, I'm calling it from, um, we run Doorbell Barbers. It's an on-demand in-home men's grooming service. We actually do home service um, in New Haven, uh, Westchester, and Fairfield County. Uh, my grandfather was a barber in, in Bridgeport for, for over 50 years and kind of grew up in that environment. Um, later on, went the traditional route, went to college, and spent, you know, about 10 years in corporate in the corporate world. And when really wanted to get um, into something a little bit more nurturing and um, more kind of client-focused. And so at at 29 years old, went back to school and uh, got a barbering license and uh, shortly after launched an in-home service. Um, now, Christian, and found out that the uh, you know, in-home service is very much uh, underserved. And so we, we are taking care of, you know, hospital mm-hmm. patients, hospice care, nursing homes, and folks that really can't get out of the house. Well, thank you for that. That's interesting because we were just talking about how uh, barber shops and, and salons have evolved uh, through the years. Um, you know, I'm curious, too, when we're talking about Lieber um, saying that, you know, there's cert- it's almost like a club and you want to feel like you can have frank discussions. You know, lately we all hear that we're not talking to, an, to one another anymore or we let politics get in the way and we, it's very polarizing. How do you address that um, in 2017? Well, what, what we did at the G thing, we made a video called Blacks for Donald Trump. And if you go to YouTube, you can see the video. It's uh, under uh, the Institute of High End Groomers. And it was like a spoof. And we talked about everything that the blacks were going to get for supporting Donald Trump. And there were some people who took it literally that, oh, you're supporting Donald Trump. And people were really getting upset. But, you know, we still, we say, oh, yeah, you know, Trump is the president. We support Trump, which we really don't. But if you watch, you have to watch the video to understand what we're talking about when you're saying, you know, blacks for Donald Trump. But if you watch that video, a lot of people got upset. And when I say we got hundreds of calls, like, oh, my God, I can't believe that you guys put the video out. And I was like, did you really listen and watch the video? Did you see what we were saying? So, I mean, those of you, go look at the video, Blacks for Donald Trump at the Institute of High-End Groomers, L. Fitzgerald Lester. And you guys will see what we do in the barbershop. We're giving it to you live, and so you understand a Saturday. Yeah. Well, we'll make sure that we look that up. And uh, we just have a couple minutes left, but I wanted to go back to, to Frank D'Angelo again, a barber, lead barber instructor at ACE Cosmetology and Barber Training Center. So, Frank, how do you navigate when maybe if, uh, there's a client that doesn't share the same opinions of, that you may, or if there are a divide among the, the barber community? I mean, how do you navigate that? It's respectful, you know. Um, it just comes down to everybody is entitled to their opinions, um, you know, and you have to be open towards other people's uh, viewpoints. You know, there's, it's really a, it's not anything to talk about. It's just very simple. But in the same time, they're also paying clients, so you sure. want them to come back. Sure, absolutely. You know, loyalty and retention is huge. You know, you want them to have their experience, um, you know, in your chair as your guest, um, and they should be able to open up and say what's on their mind because that's what the barbershop is all about. And so when uh, if a woman's looking for a good haircut, she shouldn't be shy to go to a male stylist or male barber? You know, it's funny. You know, I hear, um, you know, hear a lot of people, you know, talking about like a barbershop is really geared towards men, um, you know. And as an instructor, half of my classroom is females. Um, and actually, um, a lot of the females are actually jumping into the barber world um, and, and doing men's grooming. Uh, it's no longer classified as barbering anymore. It's called men's grooming. Um, so you're seeing an advent of that happening, happening right now with, um, you know, different uh, franchises like Art of Shaving and, and stuff like that. And, and you have a lot of uh, different types of um, stylists that are out there, females and males. I want to take a quick call. Uh, Kate's calling from East Hampton. Kate, we just have a couple of minutes. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I just want to say I go to uh, Cuts Unlimited Beauty, and I started going there uh, because of the uplifting conversation, because as a woman with a natural going into the uh, new barbershop, you don't know people, and you just don't know what the atmosphere is going to be. Uh, and it, it means a lot to me. And also, uh, I have a, it's a brother and sister, Raheem and Lorraine Chapman, brother and sister team. So I get uplifting conversation, a good haircut, and I get to see people from my church, and it's great. Well, thank you, Kate, uh, for your call and uh, your your uh, uh, shout out to your uh, favorite stylist. Um, but you know, as we close out, you know, also talking about just uh, people's perceptions. So, if someone walks into your shop, uh, Liebert, and you know they're not black, they're going to get a good haircut. Listen, we cut hair. You know, if like one thing, like so, if, so if I send down some some people to get cut by you, you would take care of that. Listen, we. <laughs> Like, I'm listening. I was I was cutting Governor Rowland. If I'm the best Connecticut, I'm, I mean I'm the best barber in the nation. You understand? I listen. I can take my clippers go anywhere in the world. My wife and I what went about to them Vegas cheers, though? with the scissors. I'm the scissor master. Okay. What you do? Go to itsagthing.com or go to www.lfl126 or go to ajinacole.com and you'll see. I'm the scissor king. Any challenge? I know my man said he's an instructor. I'm an instructor at the Institute of High-End Groomers. We can go toe-to-toe. We to come toe. down. All we, right. make, we make a video. We could do we, it. We'll we send someone listen, down to, to no, document this. No, no, what this. we'll do is I'll cut him, and he'll cut me. No problem. <laughs> you understand? Speaking of which, I need and a haircut. Where should I go? I can cut that, too. <laughs> oh, I, oh, yeah, I can cut that, too. But I'm going to be honest. Um, I'm a barber. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about men's grooming and barbershops, mm-hmm. you're talking about two different entities. Mm-hmm. Because the barbershop. The barbershop is the place of the men's. Mm. Men's grooming is where you're going to go get chopped up. Art of shaving, or trying to be a barbershop. All right. Yes, they're doing their best, but check us out at itsagthing.com. Well, I've really appreciated and enjoyed this conversation. I hope you listening, too, as well. It's nice to just speak to people in the community, such as Liebert Lester II, owner of It's a G Thang Barber Salon and Spa in Hartford. Thank you so much, Liebert. Thank you, and check us out at the Institute of High-End Groomers. If you ever want to become a real barber and get well, come check All us right. out. All right, and Frank D'Angelo, thank you for coming on. Lead welcome. barber instructor at Ace Cosmetology and Barber Training Center. I appreciate your time. Thank you. And special thanks Thanks to producer Jeff Tyson. This show was his idea because he loves his barber. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend.